God, we thank you for this King that you sent, Jesus, to rescue us, to redeem us. I pray that you would use your word this morning to help us to, to come to, to grips with this message of the gospel, and not in, in just hearing the words, but in, in transformed lives. So we pray that you'd send your spirit uh, to do that, to, to change our lives for having heard the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Uh, when my in-laws were first married, they were given a baby grand piano, big piano like this, and they're really excited about it because my mother-in-law uh, is, is a great piano player. She loves to play. Uh, but my father-in-law, uh, knowing the weight of these things, uh, wisely decided to pay someone uh, to move it for them. If you've ever done anything with pianos, you know that even the normal little upright pianos are very heavy instruments, and, and all the more so with a baby grand. Uh, so we called up a company, get the date set up and all that. Uh, when the time came, uh, these two uh, huge muscular dudes came out of the truck and he thought, okay, these guys are going to get the job done. And so they go over the t- to the piano and they just lift that thing up with all their might, but, but it's heavy. It's all the two guys can do to just lift the thing. So they're kind of doing the little stutter step thing and, and they're grunting and they're struggling and they brought some equipment, they brought some straps and stuff like that, but they're just muscling this thing through doorways and through passages and, and they are just, work- when they're done, they are just sweat pouring uh, down their faces, but they got the job done. And so paid them, went on the way. Years later, they had to move again. And, and having witnessed that struggle, my father-in-law again wisely decided to call up a company and to have them move it for him. But this time he found a company that actually specialized in moving pianos. So the time came and a truck showed up and one guy got out of the truck and he's like 70 years old. And he's not a big football player guy like these 20-year-old kids that, that moved it the first time around. He's a 70-year-old guy. He's not very big. He's just a normal guy. And my father-in-law is thinking, I don't know about this. I mean, it was all those guys could do to just move the thing, just to pick it up. Let, and this guy's going to do it by himself. So he's offering to help. He's like, what do you want me to do? I can, I can hold this up. Or I could do that. And the guy said, no, 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 I've got it. And so he walked over. He got his equipment out. He had this kind of sled thing. He walked over quietly, slowly, took one of the legs off, kind of had it balanced, tipped it up on its side very gently, right through the passageways, right through the doorway, right onto the truck. The guy wasn't even sweating at all. And my father-in-law, of course, he sees this and thinks, well, that guy knows what he's doing. If you're going to move a baby grand piano, that's the way you actually move it. These other guys, they had no clue, but, but that guy, he knew what he was doing. Now, we're here today to, to celebrate Jesus. It's Easter Sunday, and so this is the day that we remember the, the resurrection of Jesus. It's a great day filled with joy uh, for the church, and every year we make a big deal about this. We put a big breakfast on, and we encourage everyone to invite their friends. We gather, we sing, we celebrate. But the way we actually respond to the news of the resurrection of Jesus makes a huge difference. It's possible for us to respond either in a way that makes this feel like a burden, like, like these two guys just... just putting all their efforts into moving this piano, or there's a way that we can respond that, that makes this feel like a great joy to us and, and leaves us with great peace. So we're going to see that the difference that this makes this morning. We're going to look at a particular text from Philippians. So grab a Bible if you would. We're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3 uh, today, verses 1 through 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. Grab a pew Bible if you want. Uh, Philippians 3 is found on page 1825 of the pew Bibles. So we're going to learn a crucial truth for how to respond to the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we look at this text, we're going to see that there's a really big difference between doing religious things and actually knowing Jesus. That's the contrast that we have before us today, doing religious things versus actually knowing Jesus. So let's look at first the the first side of it, just doing religious stuff. Here's how the text begins, Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, you notice that there's some very strong language there. It's not the kind of polite language that you might expect to find in the Bible. He's using very strong words to give a warning here. This is written by an early church leader named Paul to one of the early churches. And the reason that he's using such strong language is because there's a group here that's promoting an approach to faith that is, that is totally undermining the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose for us. So what's happening is that this group is going back to some of the regulations of, of, the, of the Jewish law. And in particular here in view is the circumcision, this, this important Jewish uh, sign of belonging to God's people. But the underlying problem here is that it ends up being a, a very human-centered approach to religion. So God's instructions for life that were designed to, to show God's people His character and how to live in community instead are just being turned into check marks to be completed. Paul highlights the problem by showing the contrast between two different ways of thinking. In verse 3, he says, we put our confidence in Christ. We're not putting our confidence in the flesh, what he calls the flesh. Now, confidence in the flesh is about depending on our own religious efforts. And we have to admit that for most of us, this is actually the default that we tend to go back to. So when I've talked to people about their salvation, you know what most people talk about? Well, I did this good thing, I did that good thing. Most of us, this is our default. We go back to talking about doing religious things. And Paul says, I can play that game. Verse 4, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, he's good at being good. He's done all the right things. His, his pedigree is, is just right. He's able to check off all of the right boxes. But by the standards of his day, of what it meant to be a good, religious, Jewish person, he had all of them. Yep, I got circumcised at the right time, the right heritage, the strictest group in regard to God's law, zealous in defending that law, faultless by the standards of the law he adopted. So Paul played by those rules, and he won. He is a good, religious person. But this is what he says in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, this is surprising because he's built up this whole meticulous list of things that he has done right. And all of these things are in his favor. This is good, 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 good. Okay, perfect. And now he's saying everything that was in that gain column, he's now throwing away. It's now in the loss column. See, something has, has happened here to reverse his whole way of thinking. And what's happened is that he found something better. It's like the first time that uh, your dad or, or someone takes you fishing. And if you grew up around here, that probably meant that you fished for a little panfish, right? So I'm going to show, show a gratuitous picture of my son. Um, so when you catch that first fish, there's this excitement, this exhilaration. You think, you know what? I am the greatest fisherman ever. Look what I was able to pull out of that lake with just this rod. It was amazing. I'm the best fisherman. It's, it's what you want to do. Now, I grew up in Alaska, so my, my first uh, fishing experience was a little bit different. We had a, a little creek near us called Moose Creek, and, and we would fish for these little fish called grayling. About, maybe the biggest ones are about 14 inches, but just little fish. So we'd go down there with our little rods, a little push-button thing, and we, we'd throw it into the water, and we'd, we'd catch a little grayling, and, and it was great. 
And I thought, you know, I like fishing. This is really enjoyable. This is fun. I always wanted to go down to the creek and fish. Then sometime in high school, a friend of mine took me king salmon fishing for the first time. Now, I've got to be careful here because uh, it's going to sound like I'm making fun of you, but let me just say this. Uh, king salmon fishing in Alaska is quite a bit different than king salmon fishing here. We've got a great lake here. The salmon are fantastic, but the kings in Alaska are just a little bit different. So we fish on the river. This is a picture, uh, not of me, actually. This is not me. That's my uh, sister-in-law uh, with just kind of a normal-sized uh, king up there, you know, 30 to 40 pounds, something like that. So um, really, that's it's normal. My, my friend of mine caught a 78-pounder one, one year, so it was fun. Um, so, so I got to go king salmon fishing for the first time. And if you fish for smaller fish, you know, you kind of, you know, you throw your rod out there and you, sometimes you feel like you get a little nibble on the end of your thing and then you kind of pull, have to pull it up to see if you actually got it. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Uh, with kings, it's a little bit different than that. You don't have to kind of test to see if, if maybe there's a fish on the end because these are big, big, powerful fish in the rivers. When they catch the end of your lure, it pulls your rod down to the water. You've got to yank that thing back up. And so for 20 minutes, I, I struggled to, to bring this fish in. It was going downstream and upstream all over the place. And when I finally brought it to shore, I pulled this giant fish out of the water. And I thought, you know what? I'm never going to Moose Creek again. I thought that was fishing. I thought that was really fun. But I never want to do any other kind of fishing than to catch these giant monsters that make you fight up and down the river. It was amazing. I found something better. Why would I ever go back to just playing around in, in a pond or playing around in a little creek? No, this is the real deal. This is so much better. And so it is for Paul. He, he, he had built his entire life around this system. This is what I do. You just check it off. You do this. You do this. These are the right things that I do. And he had succeeded at it. He was content. But then something happened and he found that something was so much better than anything else that he'd ever imagined. And now all of that is just, that's just trash. Forget about that stuff. See, being religious might make you feel good about yourself, but coming to know Jesus is so much better than that. Now we have to admit that for some of us, we're, we're stuck just doing the religious things. We're content to come to church and, and to do good things and whatever it is, and, but that's it. We don't really know what it means to actually experience Jesus, to know him in the way that Paul is talking about. So let's see what he's talking about here to get a sense of, of what this is about. Verse 7, we already saw that he said that whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Then he doubles down on that. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. See, the, the whole system has been shaken up. And it's not just that, that his previous system of saying this is gain and this is loss, it's not just that that is thrown out, but everything else is loss compared to this one thing. This is the one thing that is more important than anything else in life. It's knowing Jesus and being found in him. In fact, he says everything else he considers garbage compared to that. And actually, the word that's, that's translated garbage here is a much stronger word. It would have been shocking, probably, to the people who first got this letter. It wouldn't be the kind of word that you would use in polite company. And so probably the best translation for our English is, is a word that you don't want me to say in front of your kids. But we'll, we'll just say, it's like excrement. That's what I count everything in my previous system. It's excrement compared to this one thing of actually knowing Jesus. That's how much better Jesus is than anything else. And remember, he had built his life on this. This was his confidence. But he has discovered a, a huge flaw in that whole way of thinking. Verse 9, This is not about having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
See, this is the contrast. There's two different ways of trying to get right before God. And the, and the one is just that brute strength effort kind of thing, doing the best you can and, and, and making up in your own mind rules that you are to follow. And that makes you standing right before God, you think. Or there's a righteousness that is given as a gift from Christ through faith, through trusting in Him. It's, the, it's a contrast between the, the brute piano movers and the, and the guy who actually knew what he was doing. Brute effort, sheer force of will versus actually understanding how this works. But of course, the analogy breaks down because both mo- modes of actually moving the piano get it where it needs to be. But, but that's not the same thing. These two different approaches to righteousness don't have the same result at all. See, the best we can do by our brute efforts and doing religious things is to fooling ourselves into thinking we're okay. If Christianity is just a set of rules to fulfill, well, then I can try to set about fulfilling those rules. But the best I can do is, is manage to satisfy my own standards, and yet my blind spots will betray that that's a broken system. It's not actually real righteousness. That's what the ministry of Jesus was about. If you look at his earthly ministry, you see that again and again, he took the strictest group of the day, the group that Paul belonged to, and he showed them the flaw in their system. And these are people who were meticulous about following every little thing that they saw in God's law. So they knew, for example, that they had to give 10% of everything to, to God's service. So they took that 10%, they took even like their, their mint and their cumin, their spices, their, okay, 10% of that, 10% of that, okay, we're good. Jesus says, you do that, but you have no idea what justice is about. And in fact, you're looking for loopholes in other parts, things that will actually cost you something. So you know that you're supposed to honor and take care of your parents. Well, you're finding a loophole so that you don't actually have to do that. Or you're putting this burden on those who are poor and oppressed, and you're not doing anything to help them. Jesus says, this is hypocrisy. You're building up this system, but it's not real righteousness. You're just fooling yourself. And that's the problem with with the religious systems that we make up. They, They can never bring us true righteousness. The best we can do is to fool ourselves into thinking we're okay. It's like you're studying for a standardized test, and your teacher gives you a practice test. And you could use that as an opportunity to see what kind of material you actually have to learn, but instead you decide you're going to memorize which bubbles are filled out. You're going to memorize that, okay, A, B, B, A, D, okay, and you're just going to memorize all those things down. Now, if you were given that same practice test again, it could, it could look like you know all of the material, but of course you don't. When you're given, when you're given the actual test, you'll, you'll be seen to, you don't know anything about it. You totally missed the point. See, we need true righteousness. And true righteousness can only come as a gift from God. That's the only way that this actually works. Nothing else works. That's what trading, doing religious things for actually knowing Jesus is about. It's about actually getting to experience the power of the gospel. That's what happens when we put our trust in Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. See, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for us and that he rose from death to life, it's good news because we actually participate in it. This isn't something that we hear about and say, okay, yes, I mentally assent that that happened. It's something that actually impacts our lives. When we settle for just doing religious things, then we miss the power of the gospel, and as a result, we live joyless lives. But Paul says he wants to know Christ, to be so united to him that it's like a participation in his sufferings, a participation in his cross, and that he gets to then know the power of the resurrection, giving him new life. See, that's what this is about. 
The gospel transforms us from death to life. It offers us forgiveness of sins and offers us reconciliation to God. We're given Jesus' own righteousness. See, the bottom line for us is that our salvation is never something we do. Our salvation is from Jesus alone. It's never Jesus plus doing some good things, Jesus plus coming to church, Jesus plus giving to the poor, Jesus plus any ritual. It's only Jesus, Jesus alone. That's what Paul discovered, and it totally shook his world up and transformed his whole perspective on God and life and what it means to follow him. And that's someone who was good at doing all the good things. Imagine if you weren't good at doing all the good things. Imagine the burden that that that, that would put on you to have to earn your own way. That's what happened to a a 16th century Christian monk named Martin Luther. Luther was was wrestling with his standing before God. See, the church of his day had swung toward the being religious, doing right things side of things. And, And there was a whole system of these are the things you do in order to earn your own way. So if you do bad things, you do this penance, do that penance, and then you're good. Or or if you want to kind of get a boost up toward heaven, you send some money and the church gives you an indulgence and off you go. But Luther was reading the Bible, he was reading about the the righteousness of God, and he ended up just being racked by guilt. He realized that when he looked into his own heart, he didn't see righteousness, he saw sin. And, And as much as he tried, he never seemed to be able to feel forgiven. He could do all the penance in the world, and still he was just filled with despair. And yet he came to continue to read the Bible, he came to discover that the righteousness of God is not something God uses to push him down, but instead the righteousness of God is a gift that is offered to him freely through faith in Jesus. It's just what we just read. And this truth totally transformed Luther's whole perspective. It it shook his world up and gave him a new view of what life and God and salvation was all about. So while before he was on the verge of, of despair, constantly looking for ways of doing more penance, more things to show how sorrowful he was to try to earn some sort of standing before God, Now, instead, he had the great freedom and joy of receiving righteousness as a gift. And so he started to write about this. He started to proclaim that salvation is from Christ alone, through God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone. It was a recovery of the gospel. And this ended up shaking the world of his day, turning things upside down, and and the gospel ended up spreading through the whole region. And throughout this month, we're going to look at those truths. Throughout the month of April, we're going to look at these five things, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone. And this isn't just theoretical stuff. It's easy for us to just see this as maybe some theological truths or something out there that's kind of obscure. But instead, this stuff actually impacts our everyday lives because it's the difference between living a life of of joy and confidence of knowing Christ knowing that in Him, through the cross, our sins are forgiven, and knowing that through His resurrection, we have that power in our lives as well for new life, and the freedom and the joy and the peace that that brings. Or we can continue to live in the self-delusion that we're making it ourselves right before God somehow. Or we're living in, in the guilt that our religious efforts are never able to be enough. As important as this stuff is, it seems like it's always our tendency to go back to just doing the religious things. It happened in Jesus' day. He called it out. He's saying, you guys are just nitpicking about this, but you don't actually know God. Same thing in Paul's day. He said, no, you have to actually know Christ. Trade that other stuff in. It happened in Martin Luther's day. Let's just do these things and you're okay. He said, no, that, that doesn't actually free anyone. We have to actually know Jesus here. And you know, the same thing happens today as well. 
Each church tends to make its own set of rules that implicitly say, if you do these right things, these good religious things, then you're okay. When my parents growing up, there were very uh, kind of unspoken rules of this is what a good Christian does. You, you don't play cards because that can sound like gambling, and you don't go to movies because they are probably bad as well, and, and you wear nice clothes on Sunday morning, and you come to church every single Sunday for Sunday school, and then for the service, and then come back in the evening for Sunday evening service, and then come on Wednesday night for prayer night as well. And, and if you happen to be gone a particular Sunday, you better have a signed bulletin from the church that you visited because if you weren't in church, then you're not a good Christian. Like, this is what it's all about, right? Like, these are the rules. You do these things. My youth pastor said that when he was growing up, they kind of put it into a little jingle. He said, it's don't, smoke, uh, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. And I remember when, when he said that, I'll admit that all I could think of is, is trying to kiss a girl who had like a wad of chewing tobacco in. I thought, well, I don't want to do that. So it kind of worked, I suppose. <clears throat> now, let's be clear on this. It, those aren't necessarily bad guidelines, but what subtly happens is that those things become our focus. And we focus on doing good religious things, and we think, well, if I just do these good religious things, then I'm okay. Then I'm right before God. I'm all set. This is part of my story from growing up. I, I did all the things a good Christian kid was supposed to do. I went to church. I went to Sunday school. I went to Awana. I went to VBS. I went to summer camp. I went to youth group. I went on two missions trips when I was in high school, and then I went to a Christian college. This is the criteria for what a good Christian kid in my home church growing up did. And I did all those things. And I felt pretty good about myself for having done all those things. I was content. But then when I was in college, God started to show me that the gospel is so much more than that. It's so much more than just, okay, you do the right things and you feel good about yourself. It's so much more than what other people think about me as well. The gospel frees us to live a new life. And I realized that I was settling for much less and what God was offering, I had no idea what it meant to know Christ the way Paul is talking about here in this passage. Listen, if that's your story, if you're a good church kid like I was, you've got to trade that in for something better. Don't settle for just coming to church. You have to actually come to know Jesus. You can do all the right things. You can come to church every service possible. You can be on every board and serve on every committee. You can give 10% of every dollar and still totally miss the power of the gospel. And you can fool yourself into thinking, I'm good. Everything's fine here. But there is so much more available to us. Jesus didn't die and rise so that we can do our good religious things and check off a box and feel good about ourselves. He died to set us free from that very way of thinking to transform us so that the power of the cross is alive in us, the power of the resurrection alive in us. We have been set free through the gospel, through our faith in him. So we should actually live as transformed, set free people. Or maybe you're on the other side of this. Maybe you've been in a church that had these very strict rules. This is what a Christian looks like, and whether those were spoken or just understood. And you always knew that you didn't measure up. And from the little sideways glances that you saw, you knew that everyone else knew that you didn't measure up. As much as you tried, you never seemed to be able to act like you were supposed to act or do what you were supposed to do. And maybe you always felt like the, the label over you was, I am a failure. And that's it. And you never felt welcome in church because you never were able to measure up. And you knew what was going on in your own heart. And everyone else seemed to be these good, nice people who seemed to be able to do all this stuff. And you could never do it. And maybe you lived with guilt 
Maybe you lived with, with shame as a result of this. Maybe it's hard for you even to come to church. Maybe you were deeply hurt by church. It's hard for you even to be here right now. If that's your story, you've got to see that, that Jesus offers a better way. Jesus is for you. Your salvation doesn't rely on you doing good things. Your, your salvation doesn't rely on you not having any, any sense of guilt. No, you're, that's taken care of in the cross, and you were given new life in the resurrection. Knowing Jesus is so much better. The power of the cross and the power of the resurrection is so much stronger than your guilt and your shame and your sin and everything else in your past. You are set free from those things as you put your trust in Jesus. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. We're not saved by doing good things. We're not saved because we do more good things than bad things. We're not saved because we put in a sincere effort or because we have so much potential. We're simply saved because what Jesus has done for us. That is the sole basis of our salvation. Well, some of us have been trusting other things. Some of us, of us have been looking at other things for our, our sense of confidence or our sense of well-being or Whatever it is we're trying to do, I, I want to offer you a chance to trade that in. Whatever that is for you, understand that, that Jesus is so much better. So if you're trusting in, in coming to church and giving and serving and doing all the right things, throw that away. That is garbage. It's nothing compared to having a real relationship with Jesus who came to save you. Don't settle for just coming to church. You have to know Jesus. Or if you've been hurt by church, if you feel like a failure, you feel like you carry this, this burden of, of shame and guilt in your life, you're not sure where your source of security comes from at all, you can let go of that as well and see that Jesus is for you and he offers you the gift of his own salvation. I want to stop right now and offer us a chance to actually respond to the gospel, to, to trade in doing religious things for actually knowing Jesus. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here, and we're going to use the last song as an opportunity to respond uh, to the gospel. See, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, or I'm not going to ask you to come up the aisle physically. I know that can be awkward or feel like there's some social pressure attached to it. But at the same time, we have to actually respond to this message. It's very easy for us to come on a Sunday morning, maybe especially to come on Easter morning, and then to hear and then to go and have it be totally unchanged. Our life is exactly the same before hearing the gospel and after hearing the gospel. Well, that means that we haven't actually experienced the power of God in our lives. We haven't actually accepted the power of the gospel for us. So I want to offer a chance for us to actually do that. So if God is stirring in your heart, you have to actually respond. And here's the response. It's repent and believe. So it's repent. So on the one hand, it's, it's trading all the junk that you've been putting your confidence in either being able to do right things or, or feeling like a failure because you're not able to do the right things, trade that in for actually knowing Jesus. And, and then believe, believe that Jesus is for you. Believe that, that his cross takes care of your sin and shame and guilt and gives you a new life. Believe that, that his resurrection is for you, that his power is, is alive and active in your heart. And maybe you don't know where to start, but I want to give you a chance to use this song as a chance to pray to God. And if you want to respond in a more tangible way, if you feel like God is calling you to something more, I'll, I'll be up here after the service as well. You can come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Or find someone and tell them about this. This is serious stuff. God is calling us to something that is so much more than what most of us settle for. Would you please stand? Let's use this, this song as our prayer to God, accepting His grace in our lives.
Pray with me. God, we want you more than anything else. We confess that we have turned to so many other things. And whether we feel like we have managed to make it in those things or if we feel like an absolute failure and hypocrite in those things. God, let us trade those things. Let's get rid of those things. And instead, see that you are so much more than that. I thank you for the cross and the resurrection that we get to celebrate on Easter Sunday the great power of the gospel. And I pray that that gospel would be in our hearts. Let's trust you more than anything we found in you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.